The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Gazella Mami, Vulture's TV editor, and I'm here with TV columnist Margaret Lyons. Matt couldn't be with us this week, so we've invited Vulture editor Nate Jones. How you doing, Nate? I'm doing okay, Gazelle. Thank you for having me on the podcast. <laughs> Thanks for being time. with us. I'm very excited. You're going to be raining down some Game of Thrones yeah, knowledge. Yeah, he's, he's our yes. resident Game of Thrones expert. Nate, did you have any... Any favorite TV moments in the past week? It was sort of a throwaway moment on Game of Thrones, but that moment where Tyrion and Jorah are in the boat through Valyria, mm-hmm. and Drogon the dragon flies above them. It felt that was very a beautiful. Scene. Yeah, it was very beautiful. It was very epic. It gave you a sense of the scale of the world mm-hmm. in a way that is very rare and was epic in all the right <laughs> in in the original meaning of the phrase epic. I also think that's a show where a lot of the characters are under pressure never to seem surprised even when yes. they are surprised, right? Like no one can ever be like, "What are you doing yeah. here?" You have to be like, "I knew you were going to be here and I don't yes. care." Yeah, right? Ned Stark <laughs> and, was the last character right? who was allowed to do that. And so to see two characters in a moment of like genuine awe and astonishment without having to front anything, I think was what sort of set that as like a slightly yes. like an accent note for the episode. Yeah, because there was, was a lot of there's like a yeah. lot of twists and surprises and everyone else has under so much baggage and and has so many reasons to stay cool and not let anything show and in that moment they were both just like whoa yeah, like, it was it was like cool. a Jurassic Park moment <laughs> yeah, in a exactly. way it was you had the John Williams strings <laughs> yeah and then it doubled as a good sort of distraction because then you've got that shot of them looking at the dragon and then the, the like, creepy spooky. stone man you know <laughs> so it segued instantly into a horror film and that was I thought that was just great Margaret This is sort of like a dubious achievement award moment. (laughs) But on the season finale of Grey's Anatomy, everyone was very busy with this large car crash pileup. And one of the patients had been severely impaled. There was like a giant metal rod going through his stomach or his trunk. And they all were like, oh, what are we going to do? Without acknowledging that, like, there is a very, very significant impaling episode early in Grey's yes. Anatomy. with <laughs> season two. Or, yeah, yeah, where it's Monica like a, Kina. Exactly, yeah. right? And it, that's one of, like, the most wrenching, like, perfect Grey's Anatomy episodes. It's these two people, and and they're both stuck on, like, a pylon. Oh, yeah, and, I remember that. And she dies, and, and you know, it's so sad, and, and Meredith is still thinking about McDreamy and they've broken mm-hmm. up because Addison is back and she's like what about her and she's crying and screaming and it's like it's one of those like really textbook Grey's Anatomy melodramatic but also just like I cry thinking about it like really great TV moments and then to have this like weird echo of that moment in such a without any of the it just was emotion. so much less emotional and so much less special it struck me as so strange. I feel like am I the only person who remembers this? Like, <laughs> is this an intentional callback? Is this an unintentional callback? But it really stuck with me. I've been thinking about it a lot. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Margaret. What about you, Gazelle? Did you have a TV moment <laughs> I, of the week? I did. I really loved Anna Klumsky's performance on Veep on Sunday night. You can see the frustration building in her throughout the season, and as Selena hires these new people onto her staff, and there's this woman advisor who's just doesn't give any real advice actually everything she says is kind of doesn't mean anything but selena thinks of her as this genius and amy is just like fuming like standing by and fuming because everything she says is just like selena is just not paying any mind to her anymore so she kind of has this moment at the end where she tells selena off in the most perfect way where she says everything she wants to say and does it in this way that is so like satisfying for the audience and it's basically like this woman is she's not even bullshitting because bullshitting takes talent. Like she's just not <laughs> saying anything. Um, and you can see it dawning on Selena that, oh, my God, she's right. But then at that point, it's too late. Amy is like, I quit. I'm done. I'm over. I'm done with this. And I just I thought she like played the scene so beautifully. It was such a great like moment of satisfaction for the audience. I loved it, but I also didn't think that Selena's response was like, oh, my God, she's right. I think it was like, oh, here comes another, like, crazy person barking at me. Well, I felt she thought it was right a few moments later when she kind of tests the woman advisor. And she's like, asks her a question and she answers. And then Selena looks at her and is like, "Uh uh-huh. Like, she's like, (laughs) I... Okay, like you really are full of shit. (laughs) We were talking earlier about Upfront Week. Basically, the week where network shows pick their slate of new TV shows for the upcoming year. 
and Margaret and I have been kind of in the thick of it. (laughs) (laughs) Upfronts are designed to woo advertisers. They're not for critics or journalists or even fans. It's designed to have each network say, here are our shows and here's why you should spend your advertising money with our network on these nights, on these shows. And and every network winds up sort of spinning it as like, obviously, we're the best. And, you know, it's a presentation. It's a business presentation. But it winds up being available to critics and reporters, which is why we wind up covering it, because it becomes the sort of coming out party for for the fall schedule. It's an exciting week for everyone who likes TV. (laughs) It's a busy week for everyone who likes TV, too. Yes. And we're going to get more into it later on the show when West Coast editor Joe Adalian speaks with Dr. Preston Beckman, who is kind of this master network scheduling executive. And you might know him on Twitter as Masked Scheduler. Right. So more so than for cable networks, um, broadcast networks still really rely on what the schedule is, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, what a Thursday night block look like, what what comes on after The Voice on NBC, right? Where where those shows go, because broadcast still has a much higher rate of people watching live. So it's still, these are sort of like the last gasps of that schedule meaning what mm-hmm. it means. and Right. And Preston Beckman is going to tell us about, you know, how relevant scheduling is anymore and how this new world of TV is affecting networks. So exciting stuff, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Almost as exciting as TV was Sunday night. Yes. <laughs> My goodness. So we, we're going to talk about uh, the two biggest shows on television right now. First up, we'll be discussing Sunday night's episode of Game of Thrones. And then we'll move on to the penultimate episode of Mad Men. So in the latest episode of Game of Thrones, we're in setting things up mode. And Sansa and Theon, we see them meet again. Daenerys, you know, is kind of making some unpopular decisions, not really sure where her head is and what's motivating her thinking. And we see Jorah and Tyrion continue their journey together and... At the very end of the episode, we find out that Jorah has gotten grayscale. We'll use Nate's expertise to kind of give us a sense of what all of this means. Okay. First of all, how has this season diverged from the books? Has it diverged a lot? Yes, it has. Sunday night's episode was remarkable in that it was, I think, probably the first episode of Game of Thrones to be comprised primarily of show-only material. Tyrion was on a boat in the books. And he did get attacked by stone men, but he was with a completely different person, and a completely different person got grayscale. A person they, who's not on the a show person at who, all. Yes, and a they person. were distracted by a completely different... They were distracted, I think, by a sea turtle. <laughs> um, they, were, they, they were on a river that had lots of big turtles. It's sort of a Mark Twain portion of the book, which has been cut for time, understandably. Daenerys does end up marrying his dar Zolorak, but she does not push those people in front of her dragons and she does not arrest okay. those people. Um, the marriage is his idea. Oh, in that he says, open the fighting pits and also marry me. What is motivating that decision? It was to join their kind of it was, families? Yeah, it was sort of... It was She was realizing she was losing the power base mm-hmm. of the city. And, you know, she can't throw everybody in front of the dragon. She can't stab everybody with spears. It was sort of her recognizing that she's going to have to rule this city, and so she's going to have to make compromise. It was sort of, to use a political metaphor, it was sort of like Obama coming to office and realizing he still had a Republican Senate. You still have to work with these people. They are here. Mm -hmm. They do have power, whether you agree with them or not. And so this was sort of her being slightly more conciliatory. You know, interestingly, five minutes after we'd seen her be the most evil we've ever seen her, right. just pushing some random guy in front of a dragon and laughing as he <laughs> gets eaten. The way Game of Thrones approaches marriage is almost exclusively power structure and very, very rarely has anything mm-hmm. to do with, like, true love or oh, love yes, matches certainly. or romance or anything. Right. And I think it does only that Rob secondary... Stark we saw yes. was, like, the only that instance. Network's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, yes, and then the, the good marriages we've seen, we've seen Ned and Catelyn, and mm-hmm. that was, you know... He married her because she was supposed to marry his brother, and then his brother died. Right, like so, you know, things can and work then out okay. It worked out okay. Yes, exactly. It's like a pragmatic right. thing. So I think the move with Daenerys, it wasn't just reconciliation. It really was like a, we know her to be like a pretty astute political mind and to have pretty interesting strategies of how she builds a consensus, mm-hmm. the ways that she wants her followers to think about her and her sort of attitudes about ostensible democracy, or at least like sort of self-rule. You know, she's not holding elections, but at the same time, she's not actually interested in being a dictator. I think she sees herself as a much more benevolent leader than that. She's realizing that the way she's ruling her current zone is going really bad. Yes. And and this marriage is a way to also bring in a level of sort of political intelligence that she wouldn't otherwise have access to. 
Yes, I think in the early seasons, or in the early episodes of this season and last season, his Darza Lark, he was a sympathetic character. He was a member of that ruling class, but he generally gave good advice, and he seemed like an all right guy. What is his, can you remind us what his background his, is? Basically, everybody you see, they've done a color coding in Marine, right? If people are wearing tan or brown robes, <laughs> then they are former slaves. And if people are wearing green or blue robes with those yellow sashes, then they are former owners of slaves. And last season, you saw a lot of the former owners. They also had really sort of grotesque facial piercings and jewels mm-hmm. hanging from their noses. And, you know, they were meant to seem very decadent, and we weren't supposed to like them at all. This season, I don't think we've seen as many mm-hmm. of those things. I, maybe they've been trying to tone them down so that, you know, when she marries one of them, we're not <laughs> like, why are you doing that? <laughs> it is a mixture of sort of post Civil War South, where you have suddenly all these freed slaves and all these former slave owners. Mm -hmm. And obviously all the former slave owners are immediately like, hey, what about us? It's not fair that we haven't been compensated for the loss of our property, you know. Mm -hmm. And then it's also a mix of post-Iraq War Iraq. So I guess in this metaphor, you know, the Sons of the Harpy are then the Iraqi insurgents. And Mm -hmm. then this is sort of, I guess, Danny's version of the Anbar Awakening, where she's trying to co-opt one side of the force to hers. Can we talk a little bit about Sansa and what's going on in Westeros where she is? There's this woman who who tells her that she's not alone, and we saw her yes. last week as well, I think. Yes, and briefly saying like, yes. "Hey, the come North on remembers. in." Yes. Yeah. Yes. Who are these? I mean, is she part of like a coalition of people who are supporting her? It, it's hard to say exactly where the show will go with this. The Starks are dead, but people didn't suddenly forget about the Starks, and even though the Boltons are ruling. Nobody is happy about the Boltons ruling unless they can personally benefit from Mm -hmm. the Boltons ruling, which very few people can because the Boltons are evil. So that was sort of a reminder that there are still Stark loyalists out there. The lesson of the first few seasons of Game of Thrones was this is what happens if you're a Stark. You die because you're dumb and there's no point in being good. Mm -hmm. And then this is sort of a reminder that, oh, no, like there are positives that can come from that in that being a a good ruler and inspiring loyalty is not a bad thing. I don't know exactly how that will play out. I suspect, seeing as the fact that Sansa was not in Winterfell in the books, it will, and neither was Brienne, it will probably play out very differently. <laughs> also, Sansa hasn't had that many opportunities to be a quote-unquote good person, right? So yes. I think we're very, I'm very attached to Sansa, certainly at this point, although yes. in season one I remember being like, this oh, is all your fault! <laughs> yes. No, they, she did a good character turnaround. Mm-hmm. We're just, she went through so much, and right. it was completely disproportionate to the vaguely annoying way she was in season one. Sure. Where you're like, who cares that she was kind of mean to her sister? She she deserves a happy ending. Right. So we've watched her suffer tremendously and also not really break down, right? So the thing that's, I think, the most Mm -hmm. sort of appealing about Sansa right now is this idea that, like, oh, she can really keep her shit together. Like, she really, in the face of tremendous hardship and deep violence and all kinds of horrible emotional scarring situations, she's able to still endure and have a sense of herself and her identity and and what she thinks is special, right? She still is able to sort of appreciate beautiful things and like experience (laughs) moments of curiosity in this way that she's not just like a husk of a Mm -hmm. human. There's this scene that we have a clip of where the Boltons are at dinner with Sansa and it's this incredibly awkward and trying experience and she... She, she pretty much keeps her cool throughout it. Why are you doing this? Because Reek has something to say to you. Don't you, Reek? An apology? Apologize to Lady Sansa for what you did. Apologize for murdering her two brothers. I'm sorry. Look at her, Reek. An apology doesn't mean anything if you're not looking the person in the eye. I'm sorry. Sorry about what? For killing your brothers. There. Over and done with. Doesn't everyone feel better? I do. 
That was getting very tense. <laughs> well, she's never sure who's going to help her and who's going to yes. hurt her. Mm-hmm. So she has to be, she's one of those people who can't ever look surprised and can't ever look, like even when she stumbles upon Theon in the kennel, I yes. guess, right? We know she's very surprised and we see a flash of it for a second and then she has to play it really cool. And what do you think her feelings are on Theon at this point? Because, I mean, she obviously would have mixed feelings about him. And she doesn't know that he didn't kill her two brothers, right? Yes. The only people who know that Theon didn't kill the boys are Theon, the boys, and (laughs) Bruce and Ramsay Bolton. Okay. As far as she's concerned, he did kill her brothers. Mm -hmm. But there is, I don't want to say nostalgia, but there is a weird, you know, it is a familiar face. Right. But then there's also an element of tragedy mixed in there because he is not the Theon she knew. He's not the Theon that anybody knew. She probably um, pities him as well. Yeah, she pities way. him. And I, th- I think this is probably the first instance that she gets that Ramsay is kind of messed up. He was sort of on his best behavior in the episodes before. And then at that dinner scene, he brings Theon out. And it's sort of like he's, you know, turning it out to 11. And sort mm-hmm. of, here is who I am. Take me or leave me. But actually don't leave me because you're a prisoner. That's sort of Sansa's MO, right? Mm-hmm. Is to always yes. be betrothed to someone. Yes. Who... She's essentially a chip. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting because I think as much as she's a chip, she also plays a pretty active role in her own rescues. She is sort of a damsel in distress on one hand, but on the other hand, the second somebody's like, quick, come with me, she's like, boom, I'm out, <laughs> like, I'm there, like, no convincing necessary, right? Like, we've seen her really understand how to manipulate her role within the Lannister family, mm-hmm. first with Joffrey, but then again with Tyrion, too, right? Like, she's very savvy about letting people tell her shit she's not supposed to know. Mm-hmm. And then waiting and sort of, like, saving up that information. She's not impulsive, we know that Sansa can, like, take a pretty long view of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, when Littlefinger says, like, do this, whether or not she really wants to do it, she's like, interesting. Yes. Like, and, yeah. this is information I will file away right. for the yes. future. She plays her cards very close yeah. to the In this episode, we see Jon Snow and, what is his name, the blind seer? Uh, Maester Aemon. <laughs> Aemon Targaryen, yes. who was the uncle of the Mad King, thus making him uh-huh. Daenerys's great uncle and one of two Targaryens mm-hmm. left in the world. So he tells Jon Snow to become a man. Yes. And kill, the kill the boy and let the, the man be born, <laughs> yeah. which is his version of the Britney Spears. <laughs> not a boy, not yet a woman. So exactly. this is Jon Snow's crossroads, um, literally and figuratively. So after that, we see Jon Snow take action to bring the wildlings to safety. His reasoning, which I think is fairly astute, is that it's better to have the wildlings on the Westeros side of the wall as humans than it is to have them on the north of the wall as undead ice zombies, which I think everybody, yes, everybody sort of agrees that it is a wise choice. But I think the interesting thing in last night's episode was that's sort of not enough. All the Night's Watchmen that he talked to, nobody disagreed that it was a wise choice, but just emotionally they couldn't handle it, right? Because Mm -hmm. for thousands of years, the wildlings have been their enemy emotionally. And it's just like that is a truth that they know is that we fight the wildlings, the wildlings fight us. He's sort of asking them to turn that off in a snap for the greater good. And you see a lot of them struggle with it. And they're struggling with it in interesting ways. You know, nobody is saying let them be ice zombies. They are all saying they killed my parents, Mm -hmm. which is not really an argument against it. It's just sort of we shouldn't be worried about them. Yes, it's essentially their gut reaction. And Jon Snow obviously is in a different position because he had time to sympathize with them. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, there is already distrust of Jon Snow. Mm -hmm. You know, if we've seen in earlier episodes that they thought he was a wildling lover, which which he he literally was. (laughs) So uh, they weren't wrong on that account. They already sort of think he's slightly too much on the wildling side. Mm -hmm. So it will be interesting to see what happens when he uses the Night's Watch and Stannis' ships and men and things like that to do this large undertaking to essentially save all these wildlings who less than a season ago, they were all trying to kill and prevent them from getting right. through the wall. And now the mission is, no, let them through the wall, right? <laughs> and so that is that is a hard thing for these people to wrap their brains around, um, understandably. One other thing I was curious about was Grayscale, which so far we've seen only through Stannis's daughter. And here we see Jorah discover it on his arm as if it's like a zombie bite. And it feels <laughs> like it's this crazy moment, but... I don't have a good sense of what that means. Grayscale is, you could say it is sort of the West or the Game of Thrones version of leprosy, but much worse. It essentially turns your skin and then later the rest of your body into stone. And worse than a zombie, you you don't get it through bites. You just get it through touch. 
It is also sort of like the Westeros version of chicken pox in that when you, if you get it as a baby, mm-hmm. it is much less lethal and much less um, serious right, and like scary. Like Stannis' yeah. daughter, they were able to contain yes. it. So Stannis' daughter, Shireen, she got it. You know, and it was sort of like a velveteen rabbit, right? There was that story where she got it from that doll that she loved so much, <laughs> and they had to burn the doll, but luckily they <laughs> saved her life. <laughs> Unlike chicken pox, where everybody has had it, it's still rare enough that you know, you can tell that Shireen Baratheon has grayscale and she becomes the girl with grayscale, mm-hmm. right? They lock her in the tower. Um, her own mother is kind of horrible to her. Most people are very wary of her. One of my questions about grayscale yes. is the people who become stone. Stone men. So their personhood is not intact either, right? Like they are also then like zombified. Yes, Gilly was talking about how her sister's like... You don't retain your identity, right? You do become more zombie-ish? Or yes. Don't, no, you're not move? like Craig the zombie. Yeah. No, you are essentially a zombie. So they're sentient? Yes. I think the way that Gilly said it is they essentially become animals. Okay. So I guess you could say it is sort of like The Walking Dead, whereas it's, you know, you get this disease and you still sort of look human, but basically there's not really a lot going on upstairs. You know, your body is stone. Your brain is stone. You are a stone man. You turn into a monster, essentially. You know, you you turn into a person that jumps onto a ship when it goes under a bridge and goes, rawr! Except we've um, seen plenty you, of people attack plenty of other people on the show without that being an instance of zombiehood. That's true. Right? Like, there's a lot of attacking on this show. So it wasn't clear to me if these the stone men oh, right. are... Right you know, intellectually capable and organized or right, if you if mm-hmm. Gilly's siblings were simply like cast out the way that many people in her culture are simply cast out, or if it was more like The Walking Dead where where the humane thing to do is actually to kill this person. Mm-hmm. Yes. And no. even in their zombie state, that that's not really a life. And the people who are like, no, there's a cure are ultimately delusional. Yes, I would say it's much more of the latter. The wildlings in particular are much more aggressive about fighting grayscale, they will euthanize anybody who has it. So if Shireen Baratheon had been a wildling, she would have been killed as a baby. And we also know that she had treatment available to her that yes. almost no one else had access to. Yes, exactly. She's she was Stannis' privileged. daughter. Yeah. Yes, she was the niece of the king. So yeah, when someone has grayscale, they send you away across the Narrow Sea. You live in the ruins of Valyria, which is sort of a zombie colony, you know, evocative of crumbling stone and crumbling stone men. And yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nate, for... <laughs> enlightening us all. So on Sunday night's episode of Mad Men, we see Pete and Trudy reunite. Don continues his epic road trip and Betty gets a terminal diagnosis. I wanted to talk a little bit about endings and the end of the show and <laughs> how I, I felt that this episode made it feel much more like tying up plot lines for these characters and giving them endings. What did you make of these moments in this in the yeah, second to last episode. I mean, episode. I think it became a lot clearer that this really might be the last time we see some of these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yes. I think for Pete and Trudy, again, you know, never say never. Who knows? It's possible next week. You know, like Matt Winers. Yeah, next week will be them right. doing the Charleston. Yeah, across, in Wichita. Across Kansas, yeah. <laughs> I think in terms of setting up what it looks like for that to be over, I think Betty had a line of like, you know, one of the things I'm good at is knowing when to let go, which mm-hmm. is sort of ironic because... <laughs> You know, it's hard to know if that's really... I don't think that's necessarily yeah. true about her. That's a thing people say about themselves <laughs> she without herself, actually being yeah. true. Right, I don't think that's super true. Although, it became truer over the course of her life, I think. Yeah. And so I With think... Dawn and, you know, yeah, I mean, I think we see it. her sort of release Dawn in that episode where they go to visit Bobby at summer camp. And, mm-hmm. and Dawn is like, you know, oh, maybe this is like going to be a thing again. And she's like, no, it yeah. is not. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I used like, to want no, this so badly. Was, yeah, your last time. You got <laughs> yeah, it. That was a freebie. No. Uh, yeah. But I think, you know, that's sort of a nudge to the audience of, like, get ready to learn how to let go of this. Like, mm-hmm. hanging on is actually not going to do you any favors, and, and it's just going to be suffering. Like, learn, <laughs> like, begin the process of severing these ties, which is really hard for me. <laughs> I'm devastated. <laughs> what did you think of Betty's cancer diagnosis? We have a clip. Why don't we play this first of her telling Sally that it's time to move on? Henry shouldn't have scared you. I wanted to tell you myself. He doesn't know you won't get treatment because you love the tragedy. Sally, I've learned to believe people when they tell you it's over. I don't want to say it, so it's usually the truth. Henry said you could have a year. And what would that year be like? I'll be with you. I won't let you give up. I know that. But I watched my mother die. I won't do that to you. 
And I don't want you to think I'm a quitter. I've fought for plenty in my life. That's how I know when it's over. It's not a weakness. It's been a gift to me. To know when to move on. These are instructions. Open it the minute you know I'm gone. No. Listen to me. Things happen very quickly when people die. Henry's not going to be able to handle things. Going back to school in the morning. I don't want you alarming your brothers. Do you feel that we've seen Betty mature? I mean, I feel like they've been kind of giving us a sense of that in this season 7B. Yeah, I mean, so when the show starts in season one, Betty's mom has pretty recently died. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Betty's detachment and denial is coming from her grief over her mother's death. So her hands go numb and she can't put on lipstick in the bathroom, remember? Mm -hmm. And she crashes her Mm -hmm. car and there's all kinds of stuff. And, And she talks a lot about her mom in that first season. And to her therapist, she talks about her mom. You know, I think we're supposed to think she was maybe about like 28 when her mom died, which is still pretty young. Sally's going to be maybe like 16 or 17 when her mom dies, which is very young. This to me was like the biggest switch with Betty switching from being her mother's daughter to her daughter's mother, right? Where it was really clear that Betty understood what it sort of emotionally cost her, the way that she didn't process her mother's death for so long and wanting to make sure that that doesn't happen to Sally, although, of course, that's not really something you can prevent your child from experiencing. Exactly. I was sort of surprised by the content of the note, or surprised maybe is the wrong term. I was very interested in the content of the note because when she first gave it to Sally, I thought it might be like, think of this on your wedding day and remember to tell your brothers this or all this stuff. And instead it was like, bury me like this. Like, this is what I (laughs) want to wear. Make sure they do my hair this way. You know what lipstick I like. like Kind was, of cool in a way because it's so Betty. It was yeah, that was that was that was the thing, right? It was so Betty, and I was actually so relieved that it didn't become much more sentimental. Mm-hmm. I liked the line it was of the perfect amount of yeah, and saying that Sally walks her own drummer and that her life will be an adventure. You know, I think Betty is in a lot of ways very envious of Sally, and oh, the, well, certainly, and we've seen her be particularly envious of Sally's relationship with Dawn, mm-hmm. and sort of really seeing the two of them as in some capacity like an alliance against her, which is I think false in a lot of ways, but sort of plays into Betty's inability to give and accept love freely and not to use love as like a jealousy bargaining chip. And so watching her be able to say to Sally, someone that she's not open in open with loving, right? This is not a very big I love you family. You don't hear a lot of I love these. You don't say this a lot. It's not a uh, huggy family. There's not a lot of lap sitting, right? Like Gene sitting on Sally's lap. First of all, Gene's supposed to be seven. Yes, He's like four Gene and a half. It's crazy. But, amazing unaging baby. So this is not like Sally has not had a tremendous amount of affection in her life, right? So to see her display pretty healthy affection to her brother was like, oh, okay. Unusual. Maybe, maybe there is still this like capacity in Sally that that is, you know, healthy and together and, and as trying and mm-hmm unfair as a lot of these circumstances are, that there's a fundamental sallyness within her that is loving, that is capable of the joy and acceptance that sort of eluded Betty for most of her life. But that letter, I was, uh, I don't know, I I found it pretty sad, right? Yeah, it was very sad. I also loved it when Sally told Betty, you love the tragedy. Because, like, I feel like we're supposed to see a Betty that kind of has reached this, like, zen state. But, like, you you do get the sense that with her last cancer scare, when she finds out that she doesn't actually have it, she kind of seems sad. Like she wanted to kind of embrace the tragedy. This is going to sound so morose, but I feel <laughs> okay talking about it this way because Betty is pretend. Um, it's not a real person, and I would probably never say something like this about real people. But I think ultimately this is actually Betty's dream, right? And so we've yeah. seen Betty really, really struggle with the idea of ever aging. And her whole identity is wrapped up in not just her looks, but in the perception of her as adored and perfect and pure and and this sort of angelic image that she has. And the biggest compliment Don ever gave her was that he wishes he had a mother like her who loved like an angel, right? Which is sort of a weird thing because that's not Betty at all. But she's very taken by this. And she says in season one that, you know, her mother put such an emphasis on looks because it was important that Betty be able to find a man. And then Betty says to her therapist, oh, and then what? You just like sit in a box and wait to die? And I think for Betty, ultimately, like she can't imagine old for herself at all. 
and there is something that she's a little relieved. I definitely got that sense, that, too. That, you know, this is, I got exactly what I wanted. And mm-hmm. there's a point where she says to Henry, um, I think it's Jean's second birthday, third birthday, and she's still really mad at Don, and Don shows up with, like, a toy, and they're all like, yeah, fuck you, Don. <laughs> and, and Henry's like, oh, is everything okay? And Betty's like, yes, we have everything. And it's mm-hmm. true, and she did get exactly what she wanted. And I think anyone who had any lingering questions about whether Henry was truly devoted to Betty, I think this would indicate absolutely and completely that he was and does love her very much and really does like love her for who she is and as often as they fight about certain things I think by and large Henry has been an incredibly good husband to her Um, he's as far as we can tell I think the only totally faithful (laughs) companion on the show maybe Ken Ken Cosgrove the mad mensch (laughs) (laughs) so Betty she isn't super interested in being a parent right and I think that the sort of tragedy of not being there for her children is actually doesn't weigh on her all that much the way it might weigh on other Mm -hmm. parents Mm -hmm. I think the tragedy of not being there for Henry I think she got like this sort of selfhood and and identity that she wanted to get from a marriage from him so the only thing that was left for her was the sense of total self-edification which she got by just being accepted into this graduate program and deciding to go and and enjoying it and learning things and feeling like oh I still have you know, capabilities and curiosities and and that part of me exists. And Mm -hmm. I could, you know, if I wanted to be like Sally, I could be. I'm choosing not to be. And she got all these things checked off of her list and much in the way that Pete sees Trudy as his to-do list and and that life with her is what he really wants. And the way Joan has said the thing she really wants is, is true love. This is kind of Betty's thing, that she really wants this, like, beautiful, romantic, tragic death when she's beautiful and, and she's getting it. So it's weird and, like, fucked up to say, but again, Betty's pretend, and so I don't feel bad accusing her of wanting to die. But I think she kind of does. I think Sally's right. And right, because she's not like, no, Sally, shut up, right? And, like, we've seen her say, like, no, Sally, shut up, like, a hundred times. Yeah, yeah. She slaps her, she, like, yells at Sally till she barfs, right? Like, we've seen plenty of times where Betty has been very, very comfortable telling Sally she's wrong. And in this moment, it, that's not what happens. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about Trudy and Pete? Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Trudy's hair looked amazing, by the way. Yeah. Trudy's hair has always like, looked what? pretty good. Yeah, Trudy's is true. definitely the... <laughs> I feel like Trudy is so stylish. Like, I love Trudy's... I, I mean, her hat collection alone. Hat. And like, <laughs> Do you think the airplane had anything to do with her agreeing <laughs> to go, get back with Pete? So I think this was another instance of, you know, nobody being able to say the true thing about themselves, right? Mm-hmm. When she says, Pete, like, I envy your sentimentality or mm-hmm. I'm jealous yes, of your ability to be I sentimental. I love that little speech. Yeah. Because yeah. Uh, I remember things the way they actually were or yeah, something like yeah, that. Something um, like that. And it's sort of funny because obviously she's incredibly sentimental. <laughs> I think what's interesting is that that things maybe aren't the way they were. And I think watching Pete, especially with Tammy, be like a pretty capable parent, right? Mm-hmm. In this way that we had seen Pete express no interest in parenting whatsoever, not be into taking care of a baby, certainly not into taking care of a toddler, being very put off by Tammy's appearance at their dinner party. And then now it's seeming like, you know, Pete knows how to treat bee stings, knows how to make her calm, looks forward to taking her to lunch, right? They have like a fun little rapport Mm -hmm. going. So it's not just sentimentality that would be appealing for Trudy. It's like a forward looking of what would it be like now, right? Like if we Mm -hmm. started today, what comes next? And he presents that to her so well. He's like, we can just start now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think... We see Pete attempt to copy Don a ton over the course of the mm-hmm. series, and there's a lot of ways in which this points us to the idea that basically, like, only Don can Don. And <laughs> every time anyone else tries to Don, it goes really badly. <laughs> Harry tries it a bunch of times, and Pete tries it a lot, and it never works. But this is another instance. We know that Don had just said he was like going to be in Wichita. Pete is moving right. to Wichita, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of an unusual thing to mention twice in an episode, right? Because you could have no, said not anywhere. Not a coincidence. Right? Yeah. Like, it could have been anywhere, right? Like, Infinite choices. So there's that. I mean, I think Pete working for a plane company is pretty ironic, given that we know he's a terrible flyer. He doesn't like to fly. And also that his dad died in a plane crash. For all the people who couldn't change, I actually bought it that Pete had changed. Right? Yeah. Like, no, he, Pete feels more like the true version of his best self when he's with her. Like when it, he was in California, he thought he was his best self, but that was clearly like a costume that he was wearing and right. thought was fun to wear. And he's dating these blonde people. But that didn't feel like Pete. So Don, meanwhile, is staying at motels. Margaret, you wrote a piece about how this episode was a callback to an episode in season one. It struck me that it was a callback to The Hobo Code. So the title of this week's episode was The Milk and Honey Root. Mm-hmm. And that is a title of a book called uh, The Milk and Honey Root, a hobo's handbook. It's a term that hobos used to mean like a, a stretch of road or whatever where people were really nice. 
So, you know, if we're going to talk about hobo stuff, it seems like we should refer back to the episode where we meet this, like, formative hobo from mm-hmm. Don's youth. This was in um, a flashback. Right. So scene. this is in um, episode eight. And, like, everything else going on in this episode, it's, like, Don and Midge. Like, it's when Midge mm-hmm. is like, let's get high and listen to Miles Davis. And it's like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> and Peggy and Pete are having sex early in the morning at work. Lois is, like, trying to hit on Sal. So, like, this is how long ago that episode was. Like, it's a, a lot has happened. Mm-hmm. People have changed. Or not. Um, and so Don has this flashback of when he was living with Archibald Whitman. And, and, you know, it's the first time we hear him be like, ain't you heard? Like, I'm a whore child. It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, it's like so. Those scenes. It's, yeah, it's Glad a we're lot. done with those. Yeah. I, Hopefully. It, yeah. Oh, God. Um, so right. he's talking to this hobo and baby Don is like, oh, so you don't have a home? And he's like, no. But when I had a home, it was horrible. Like, I had a wife. I had a mortgage. And, and I couldn't sleep. And then death used to visit me. And little Don is like, oh, you know, like, really? You know, when? He's like, every night. And now, like, now that I'm free, like, every day is a new day and I sleep under the stars and, like, I sleep like a stone. And then he sort of explains this idea of, like, being free and having no no strong mm-hmm. attachment to material possessions and to anyone's emotional needs. And mm-hmm. he's very romantic about it. And he teaches Don the marks that hobos put on like fence posts as a way to communicate with other hobos of like this is a place to you can eat or tell a sad story here and whatever and he leaves he winds up leaving a mark or it's not clear if that hobo leaves this mark or if this was a previously left mark that that hobo had simply not noticed that um, a dishonest man lives here referring to Don's father I think this is probably the first time anyone has told Don your father is dishonest it's not you're not crazy like this person is bad and and other people have noticed and so i think that's sort of part of the allure for don is that the first time anyone validated his anxiety and mm-hmm. you know despair it was this hobo and don is somebody who isn't really comfortable with emotional attachments and he has a very ambivalent attitude about material possessions i think he likes the cover that they give him but i'm not sure that he himself is actually attached to any one of them in particular. Is Don a hobo? Well, right. I mean, that's what we see, right? Yeah, we yeah see, no, that, that's watch been him, the primary like, divest... lesson of yeah. seven seasons. We Don... watch him divest himself of, uh, he gives that terrible grifter <laughs> belt boy his car, and then he's sitting there, and, you know, I thought he looked pretty happy in the oh, scheme yeah. of things, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, you better call Sally pretty soon, but, <laughs> right? Uh, I do wonder, or is Henry Francis going to wind up raising Sally, Bobby and Jean? I mean, oh, Sally's yeah. in high Sally's school. Sally's almost done. I mean, but I think we've seen Henry be a pretty good father oh, in, the, for sure. in the short snippets. So, yeah, I'm not too worried about their... No, I'm just curious, yes. is Don going to be... Is Don oh, going to want to oh, Almost zero percent, I would say. <laughs> you know, how many he, words has like Don spoken to Jean on the air? He only has a connection with... Sally, it seems. Yes, it's very interstellar. I mean, he loves yeah. one of his children, right. and the others are sort of, well, they're all right. Hopefully we'll get to see this play out, and we'll get yes, to see... Yes, hopefully the last episode is just 40 <laughs> minutes of legal <laughs> No, it becomes like my two dads. Like, it's like, well, let's just all live together. <laughs> and like Henry and Don form a bond and like take over New York state politics. Don is going to have to find out that... Betty has cancer, don't you think, before the series ends? Or maybe I mean, not? I, that I doesn't weigh that, that heavily on yeah. me just because it's not like he'll never find out. Right. Yes. Like we yes. just won't see it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we probably have seen the last of, of Betty of Betty and Henry Francis. I would be very shocked if we saw them next week. I don't want to spend the finale at Betty's funeral, I will tell you what. Yeah. <laughs> I just Madman's not. Do you think there will be like a future jump potentially where Oh god. <laughs> I don't just because it would be so hard. I think to make Sally look mm-hmm. older and the idea of having another actress play grown up Sally is just like so egregious. Oh God, no, they can't do Right, that. like you couldn't yeah. do that. So I mean, maybe like not a dramatic future jump, but like, you know, like maybe 75. we see them a year in the future, two years, yeah, or 75. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah. a Battlestar Galactica. It feels so tough to me. <laughs> or six feet under it. We see everybody quitting <laughs> yeah. the advertising business. Just I thought it was going to be like the end of Parks like an rec. 80s movie where there's just like on the screen and it's like, Don Draper lived until whatever. And like, he eventually <laughs> retired as blah, blah, blah. And like, that would be amazing. That would be like, like that. that sort of like kicky, like, yeah, cut, yeah. yeah. The American Graffiti. Yeah, fine. exactly. Like, a, yeah, so it's sort of, I think American Graffiti was one of the first things to do that. So it would be almost time inappropriate, yeah. right? We're a few years ahead. But, a few years, yeah. right? The TV show we're discussing is Mad Men, and you can catch the series finale next Sunday night on AMC at 10 p.m. So as we discussed earlier, this is Upfronts Week, and we have our West Coast editor, Joe Adalian, who will talk a little bit with veteran network scheduling executive, Dr. Preston Beckman, who spent nearly 20 years at NBC during their messy TV era and helped the network dominate TV for most of the 90s. Then he moved over to Fox in 2000, where he helped develop the American Idol juggernaut. 
and he currently acts as senior advisor for the Fox Networks Group. So over to you, Joe. Thank you, Gazelle. So Preston Beckman, thank you so much for being on the Vulture TV podcast. My pleasure, Joe. So we're talking to you, right, as uh, Upfront Week is in full force at the networks uh, in New York City. The schedules are being announced, uh, and you've been doing this now. You've been in this business for, what, at least 30 years? Uh, almost 35. You're not actually at the Upfronts in New York now, but you still participate in the process, and you've, you've been there many times in the past. Uh, if an alien sort of landed on Earth tomorrow... Uh, which is probably the plot of Minority Report. I have no idea. But if an alien landed on Earth tomorrow and asked you to describe the upfront process, upfront week, what would you tell them? Well, uh, as simply as possible, I would say that uh, once a year, the five broadcast networks trek by plane to New York and present to a group of people called advertisers a schedule that will begin in mid-September and run through the rest of the, at least through May, and more and more these networks announce programming that goes beyond May and into the summer. And um, they show reels of the new new programs, and they bring out talent. And then they have parties where they uh, load up people with booze and shrimp, and then these advertisers go back to their offices and watch the pilots. And a negotiation starts between the uh, sales departments of the broadcast networks and the advertisers to uh, buy time on these shows where the advertisers will insert generally 30-second commercials. And that dance begins pretty soon after the, the uh, presentations. And uh, then the game of chicken ensues. Well, I'm wondering, you know, you've been doing this, like you said, almost 35 years now. TV's changed a lot since then, but has this basic process changed much? Is it still the same thing? Or is it, is it at this point, is it a little fundamentally different? And, and not just the week, but the, 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 what goes up to the week leading up to it, all the different discussions and scheduling meetings and, and programming. Is, is, is it a different world now, or well, is it pretty much the same thing? I, of course it's a different world. I, I think that what makes it the same thing is the dance that goes on between the advertisers and the network sales departments. It, it's different in that there's more talk of other platforms in which this product is consumed. It used to be, hey, you know, Tuesday at 9 o'clock on Fox, here's what you're going to find or whatever. Now it's in addition to uh, these 15 hours, one can buy time on Fox Now. One can buy time on Hulu. There are all sorts of ways in which we can monetize these shows, and um, as a result, some of the, you know. So that there's talk of that. Do you think, with all the changes, do you think that the upfront whole the whole week is it? less relevant than ever or is it actually in some ways more important than ever because networks you know networks don't they're not alone anymore they've got a lot of competition so is this really a time to focus and sort of say hey we are still here we are still relevant we are still big well i think that's part of it i think it's the same way that the fact that uh the networks introduce most of their fall shows within one or two weeks you know a lot of people say it's silly but at the on the other hand it draws attention to network television during those two weeks and honestly it's relevant because we're having this conversation right now so it's it's institutionalized in the minds of the very people who question its existence <laughs> i want to talk by the time this uh podcast drops fox will have already given its presentation, but I'm not going to ask you about the specifics of the Fox schedule, even though you probably may know part of what it is. But I want to ask you just in general, uh, not specific to Fox, but just at, at, at wherever you've been in these meetings, what, what's it like inside schedule meetings, you know, when the networks debate there? What's, what, is it a free-for-all? Is it a political dance? Is it uh, a blunt discussion of what's good for the networkers or something more without, you know, without getting any specifics or personalities? What's it like? What's, what's, what's this process of hammering out a schedule? The one thing I tell people is, is, is being in the scheduling room every year is a lot like childbirth. And by that, I mean people can tell you what it's like, but everyone's unique. You have different bosses. They like to run, the, you know, they like to run it differently. If I was going to say the similarities are, there are certain people who, in, in the years that I've been doing, you kind of find in the room, you, you always find the, the network uh, president or chair people, chairperson, 
will be in the room usually uh, your head of sales is in the room or some of your sales executives because uh, at the end of the day you're doing this all for them so to do it without their input would be kind of silly and uh, you know if uh, you hope and and most of the time sometimes they don't you hope they're honest in the room and so that they don't um, look at you two months later and say well you should have done x y and z and we go why did you tell us (laughs) you know you generally have business affairs people can, can sometimes be in the room because you're still making deals while you're setting a schedule. You oftentimes have some of your finance people. You will generally have your head of programming. Uh, you, personally, you're going you know, to piss some people off, but I don't see the value of a lot of creative executives sitting in the room. They've kind of delivered the packages. We hear what they have to say, and then they should just you know, move on. Uh, but sometimes they're in the room. And then, of course, you have the big boys. Rupert Murdoch, Peter Rice, James Murdoch, Chase Carey, you know, and Bob Wright, Bob Wright yes. would always show up for a while. And, um, you know, they come into the room and, uh, you know, it can be anywhere from six or seven people to 15 or 20 people at any given time. It's uh, and it, it, it it's different every year. Right. And there, there's a debate that goes on, and at some point, someone has to make a decision. Um, yeah, yeah. And, well, generally, just... what happens? I mean, my my experience, fortunately, has been, you know, uh, I generally am asked to go up to the board. I put up a schedule. I sit down, and I mentally go away for about two days, and I wait for everybody to talk through everything, and then we pretty much generally get back to where we started. Not because I knew. That's what it was going to be, but because my job for the six months leading up to that, being in that room, is to talk to everyone. You know, oh, also, obviously, I'm a believer in program testing and hearing what the public has to say, getting some feedback. Uh, also, the way we screen the pilots, we screen them with, um, with people from all departments in the company. So I like to hear what people other than the creative executives who people who actually may sit down and watch television at night have to say about these shows. I want to ask you, we know that um, lead-ins still matter in television, even in a world of, of DVRs and time shifting and VOD. Does the actual schedule and, and how many gross ratings points result from that schedule, is it nearly as important as it was even 10 years ago? It, uh, it obviously, you know, I mean, I would be, you, you should hang up on me if I said it's as important in terms of where shows are as it was 10 years ago or even five years ago. But I think as certain elements of what that schedule looks like are become less important, there are other ways in which the schedule becomes more important. And, and this is going to sound weird, but this is something I actually brought up this year in our scheduling room is that you almost have to look at your schedule as your homepage as much as looking at it as a schedule. And that's how, what is it saying about you as a broadcast network? What is it saying about the programs that you feel are important? How does it, how do you create excitement as much by flow as by, well, that's a night. That looks like, boy, they figure, boy, they're giving me a lot of shows that I, for instance, to ABC's credit, I'll give a shout out to Andy Kubitz, who's a right guy who schedules ABC. You know, they, they came into this season with a Shonda, Shonda Rhimes night. Mm-hmm. TGI and Thursday, right. That, um, so you see what I mean? So, so that builds more interest in a night and in the kind of product that, or, or, or what ABC wants to represent. Right. Um, fascinating stuff. I want to ask you, uh, is there a um, schedule move over the last 35 years of which you're, you're most proud that you point to? It's like, that's the one, that's my signature. It doesn't have to necessarily be the biggest one. It doesn't have to be the one that was the noisiest that everyone talked about and is that three choruses sing about, but just the one that you think of ended up being particularly clever and like, you know what? That was it. Or it could be a big one. So anything that you'd like to point to? Okay. Uh, when I was at NBC, uh, the one that I always felt made, made a big difference was when we, I called it doubling down, we, we ended one season with, um, I believe it was Mad About You, Seinfeld and Frasier. And we 
we do research during the year, and we were seeing both creatively and also competitively how strong Frasier was. This was its first season. We were going to go into the season with a Thursday, a Tuesday night that had a drama and one reality show, whatever. And I got a call from um, a crusty veteran salesperson at NBC telling me that if I brought a schedule to New York with Unsolved Mysteries on Tuesday night, she was going to kill me. <laughs> and I think she meant it. So I thought about it, and I was, you know, when you're in back in the day, you, the, that schedule would be on my mind 24/7. And I remember it was a Friday night, and sometime during the night, I just thought about taking Wings and Fraser and moving them over to Tuesday night and uh, putting four new comedies on in the 8:30 and 9:30 slots, both on Thursday and on uh, Tuesday. And really go after ABC, which had pretty strong family comedy block on Tuesday. Roseanne was at 9 o'clock. And I thought about it, and this is back in the day before emails and stuff. So I went downstairs, and I sort of mocked up a grid, and I faxed it to uh, Warren Littlefield, who was my boss, and uh, John Miller, who was head of marketing, and I faxed it to them early Saturday morning while it was still fresh in my head. And Warren called me. And he said, I think we should do this, but we're going to have to hire people to start our cars because <laughs> uh, the two shows on moving were Paramount shows. And um, we knew that uh, the people over at Paramount were not going to be thrilled about two of their shows moving off of what was considered our big night. But we did it. And uh, ABC uh, responded by moving Roseanne out of the time period and putting Home Improvement on. Tuesday at 9 o'clock, and that's when Home Improvement was at the top of its game. And uh, we spent uh, a good long summer debating whether to blink. Uh, I, I, don't believe, I don't believe in blinking. I never blink. I go for it. Uh, and, and I'm a strong believer that you should always let the other networks do your dirty work for you. And, you know, by making that move, ABC weakened themselves in other places. And even though Home Improvement beat Frasier, uh, we still built a second night of uh, what became musty TV comedy, and um, that that served us quite well. Well, Preston Beckman, uh, thank you very much for uh, being with us on the Vulture TV podcast. Uh, anyone who, if you don't already, you can follow Preston uh, on Twitter at Masked Scheduler. That's M A S. K-E-D, scheduler, uh, and uh, there's a lot of snark and a lot of insight uh, and commentary and good stuff, and, and thank you as always for, for, for coming on. Okay, take care, Joe. All right, now back to the studio with Gazelle. Thanks, Joe. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Vulture, and you can email us any questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can catch me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Margin Charge. I'm Nate Jones, and you can find me on Twitter at at KN and the numeral 8. And you can catch us here again next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.